Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, February 10th, 2019 called An Encounter with God, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. We're going to look at uh, three close encounters, three close encounters, one in each of the readings. Valerie, thanks. You always honor the scriptures in your reading. Appreciate that. Um, But Isaiah, and then chronologically speaking, it'll be Peter and then Paul. Um, So Isaiah, Peter, then Paul. So, you know, it's interesting right now, there's, this, uh, uh, there's really a, a trend line. If you go online and you look at a podcast and you're looking at certain apps like Calm and so forth, mindfulness is a big, big word in our culture right now that having a sense of self-awareness, positive self-talk, those kinds of things, kind of focusing on those things. And it, it's not a new thing. I mean, it's a grounded in all kinds of things. Christians have been doing that. Monks and nuns have been doing that forever in monasteries and so forth. Meditation techniques, pondering the scriptures, Prayer itself is often considered that kind of activity. But mindfulness right now, in many, many ways, is kind of this uh, self-focus on a quest, right? You know, on a quest. And, you know, I remember the, uh, the uh, I think it's still being published, uh, the comic strip BC. Um, and he used to have all kinds of really strong Christian messages. And I think it's been handed off to different, I forget, anyway, uh, different artists and so forth. But in BC, one of the recurring themes that would happen in those Sunday morning comic strips especially was there would be a guy at the top of a mountain sitting cross-legged, you know, kind of a guru up at the top, and it was, uh, they tried to pose it in a humorous way where the guy on his quest would kind of ascend the mountain to be able to ask him his question, and then he'd get some kind of goofy answer, you know, or some kind of something answer. And I think, for many, many people, I think they perceive that the Christian life or a spiritual life, a life of faith, is this kind of quest to find God, kind of this desire, this, and you're on a journey to find God and to seek that out. And in fact, we even call a whole group of people over the last 30 years or so spiritual seekers. It's not a new idea, but we actually use that as a term. People are seeking What's fascinating is, as I looked at this, these three readings, and we're a church that has assigned readings, and I don't always use them, but it's kind of nice when they're assigned, because when I'm assigned something, then I can't put my bias on it. You know what I mean? If I'm assigned it, I have to figure out, what's God saying here? Uh, What do I think God's saying? Rather than me saying, let me see if I can get God to prove something I want to say. So... Um, So I kind of like it, that we have assigned readings. And so in this one, there was one assigned from Isaiah... And Isaiah is already a prophet, and he gets this vision. He gets this vision of God, and it's called Isaiah's commissioning. And essentially, he's in the throne room of God. Imagine it, right? These seraphim, six wings, wham, 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 they're flapping, you know, and six pairs of wings, and they've got, you know, two are flying with them, two of them, they're covering their faces, and two of them, I mean, imagine, you know, like six or so uh, Black Hawk helicopters, and you're standing under that, you know, and it's the throne room of God and a great big, you know, brazier and coals and there's, you know, incense and it's just something. I mean, it's just, and here's Isaiah in the middle of it and standing in the middle of that, he's in the presence of the most holy God 
And you know, we, don't, we struggle with this because we don't have holy spaces in our life anymore. Do you agree? It's very rare that you have holy spaces. We'd like to think this is, you know, but anyway, that's a holy space. And in the midst of that, he goes, woe is me. I'm lost. I am lost because, man, I know what's come out of my mouth in the last few days. That's what he says. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, too. Second one, chronologically now, is Peter, right? So here's Peter. And Peter, um, you know, the scene is, it appears that they were called there in Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee, and uh, Jesus called him. He's cast out some demons, and he's healed Peter's mother-in-law already from a fever, like the night before, a couple nights before. And the guys are like, well, let's, uh, we got to make a living. So they go back, and they're fixing their nets and stuff, and Jesus comes down to speak at the shore. And then you get this great miracle, right? I mean, it's a great story. I've preached on it many times, where Jesus goes, hey, put out in the deep water, and let's make a catch. And Peter is a professional. And you could just imagine him sitting there going, um, you know, I'm the fisherman here, right? You're going to where there ain't no fish. But okay, you healed my mother-in-law last night, and I seen you cast out a demon. All right. And they fill up two boats, and they're about to sink. So it's a great miracle. And in the presence of that divine power, Peter is overcome, right? Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And then the third one is Paul. And Paul, and it's, isn't it interesting in this reading, if you were paying attention closely, you'll notice that what we just said in the Apostles' Creed, a lot of that Paul was saying right there, that's about 55 A.D. Or what would we say politically correctly? Common Era, C.E., okay? Yeah, 55 A.D., about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, those words appear. Those are creedal words. We think the Apostles' Creed, or what was called the Old Roman Creed, goes all the way back into the first century. Isn't that fascinating to think that we're saying the same things that they said? Same things. And then Peter said, and then Paul goes on to say, and, and all these eyewitnesses saw Jesus. Some are still living. Some have died. Some have fallen asleep. And he said, and then he even appeared to me, and I, it was a mess because I was like abnormally born, right? I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I actually persecuted the church of God. But because of God's grace, and then that's the Popeye line. No, who knows Popeye, right? I am what I am, is what he says. Sorry, I'm really dating myself. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And God's grace had an effect in me. So anyway, those are the three scenes. When I, as I worked through those, I said to myself, what examples, what are the predominant examples in Scripture? Is it people on a quest for God? Or is it God on a quest for you? Let me tell you, one of them is law and the other one is gospel. The law one is, you better be on a quest. If you ain't searching for God, you must not be committed. You must not be very spiritual. And what we discover in Scripture, I can only think of a couple of examples of people on a quest for God. Hannah, that's a strange name that you may not recognize. I love it. It's a beautiful name. But Hannah was the mother of Samuel, and she's on a fervent prayer request with God for a child. I can think of that example. Got any others? Think about it. God comes in a burning bush. God comes in miracles against the God of Egypt. 
God comes in manna in the wilderness. God comes in a pillar of fire and a cloud. God comes in His holy presence. God comes and speaks with Abram in the olive grove. God comes. He comes to Samuel and says, anoint a new king. And so forth and so on. God comes to Peter. Here comes Jesus. Hey, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. It isn't like Peter's going, oh, we must go on a quest for holiness. You know, these are regular people living regular lives, doing what they do, and here comes God. And that's the story I want to share with you. And and what I'm hoping today is, because it's kind of Bible study a little bit, um, and all the readings are right there printed for you if you want to look at them in their entirety. And, but there's three people. What's unique about him? So in Isaiah, Isaiah's already a prophet. Let's imagine that he's already part of the church. He's a faithful Jew. God is already using him as a prophet to speak to his people. But in chapter 6, God brings him into the temple and shows him his holiness, and Isaiah is struck down. He, in the holiness of God, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. I am undone. And you know what I liken this to? I liken this actually to our gathering here. I have people that sometime ask me, they say, why do you Lutherans confess your sins every week? You know, I mean, why do you do it? And I go, because I need to. And more than that I need to confess my sins, I need to hear the grace. I need to hear, because to, I, I wrote that confession today, and sometimes I'm way too comfortable Sometimes I hear the call of God and I think, oh, that must be for some other guy. And I'm, I'm, I need to repent of that. I'm, I, wrote it, I write these things for me, you guys. I hope they apply to you too, but I write them for me. And so I, I feel like this Isaiah scene is where God is calling to him. And, and if you're looking on your outline, let me get this here. <clears throat> What happens is Isaiah confesses his sin, and then here comes a seraphim, one of those helicopters, whap, whap, and he comes with his tongue and a coal, touches it to his lips. That's vivid, isn't it? Ouch. Right? And cleanses me. See, your sins are atoned for. I have made you holy. I have made you one with me. And then it's this, it's this beautiful moment. It's this beautiful moment in which he says, who will I send? And here's Isaiah going, well, I'm standing here. How about me? Right? And isn't that interesting? And that's convicting to me because far too often do I know God is saying, who shall I send? And I'm kind of like trying to get small and hoping that he's looking at somebody else in the classroom. And so Paul, Isaiah, being cleansed, knows that because he's cleansed, he can be sent. I'm watching this TV show right now that I'm really intrigued by, and it's uh, Victoria. It's on Masterpiece Theater, uh, the reign of Queen Victoria. And she came to power as a young woman and has all gaggle of kids, a whole bunch of kids, um, and she, how she rules her people. It's in the 19th century. So around the time of the Civil War in America is when she, be, you know, before the Civil War, she goes, has a long reign, long reign, into the 20th century, just the beginning. So she, uh, but there's a cholera outbreak. You know what cholera is? Cholera is a horrible disease that caused death almost universally uh, through, um, you know, uh, dehydration, diarrhea, all of that kind of stuff. Bad, it was bad. But they didn't know what caused it. They didn't know, they knew what, they knew there was a germ. But they couldn't, they were debating whether it was through the air, miasma they called it, 
or through water. And this one not well-known physician, uh, Dr. Snow in London, determined that it was water, and he did a tracking of the 600 and some cases of death in a neighborhood, and it all centered around a pump that was pumping water straight out of the Thames River, unfiltered, unclean, and people were using it, and they were dying in droves, and discovered it. Well, they did, took, them, took them weeks and weeks, months to figure this out. And in the midst of it, here's Victoria, Queen Victoria, and the health board is coming to her saying, we have to get you out of the city so that the air, the miasma, doesn't affect you. We have to protect you, get you out into the cleansing air of the city, uh, away from the dirty air of the city into the cleansing air of the country. And she is adamant. She says, absolutely not. I love this quote that she said. She said, if one of my children, she had like seven kids. She said, if, if one of my children was sick, I would run to the nursery to be with them. Nothing could prevent me from being with my children. Therefore, I must be with my people. It was a phenomenal statement. And so she goes down into the hospital ward. I mean, people were terrified. Her servants are terrified. The people with her are terrified. And she's in there holding hands, comforting people, being with people, commanding her doctors to determine ways to how to fix this. And they do finally identify it and cleanse it. But what a powerful thing where Isaiah says... I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's what we do when we say we confess. But what God does is he comes and says, you are my own. I have forgiven you. I have atoned for you. Who will go? And that's when the church needs to say, because sometimes I think the church is afraid. When I say the church, I mean, I mean the people, right? The bride of Christ, the queen to the king. We are the queen to the king. Shall we go where sickness is? Shall we go where hurt and disease and poverty are? The answer has to be yes. Because we have already been saved. We have already been cleansed. We already know our eternity is secure and our present is secure. We already know it. And so, like the queen, sent into those settings in order to provide the grace and the message of hope which God sent Isaiah to do. Second thing, second thing. So right now, um, right now we're working with several churches and to pray for Faith Lutheran today, right now as we talk, they're probably coming up with vote, they're voting on a whole variety of things to uh, contract with a man who I've taken through confirmation and instruction and so forth to see if he'll be, be, begin to enter the road to be their pastor. So I'm really excited about that. We'll get Jim and Aaron back. That'd be nice. And, um, but I'll tell you what, the months leading up to this have been tough because they've been afraid. Their head elder died suddenly. It was a horrible tragedy. Wonderful man, Don Broughton. And uh, they've been afraid, fearful of whether they'll survive. The last two days, Friday and Saturday, another pastor and I from uh, uh, Twin Falls visited with a church in Rupert. And it's a hot mess. Um, there's a group who don't want their pastor to remain and another group who doesn't want the people who don't want the pastor to remain to go. So they're mad at each other. And they're mad and it's a mess. And we need to hold that in prayer. And it's fear-driven. They're afraid. I'm serving the, on Monday and Tuesday, on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. I was in Portland because we're at Concordia University in Portland, my alma mater, my wife, Mrs. Bopes, so forth, uh, Jared, um, they're looking for a new president. And they're afraid. 
It's easy to see because the pool of candidates is so small and it's so narrow and private universities today are struggling. They're closing like crazy. And so they're afraid. You know what fear does to decision-making? Uh, fear to decision-making is a death. It's just death to decision-making because it causes you to circle your wagons. It causes you to look inside. It causes you to separate instead of collaborate. It causes you to move away. Look at what Peter does. It's exactly here in Peter. What does Peter say? It should stun you. Peter is astounded by this miraculous catch of fists. I'm in the presence of God. You know what's going on in his mind. I'm in the presence of God, and I have fish guts on my hand. And I stink in a lot of ways. And here's God sitting in my boat, and he's like, I cannot be in your presence. I have to get away from me. And the fear, it's fear. Because look at what Jesus says. He says, don't be afraid. That's how you know it's fear. He says, don't be afraid, Peter. I came to you. You get this? This is so critical. If you think I've got to be on a quest of a journey to go find God, give it up. C.S. Lewis, I, the hound of heaven, are you familiar with that term? It's a great term, the hound of heaven. And C.S. Lewis is one of those, in the book Surprised by Joy, he writes about it. And surprised by joy is a great double meaning for C.S. Lewis because he married late in life. He was a bachelor, never thought he'd marry. And this American uh, divorcee, Joy, um, he marries her. And he has several, several years of great joy. So it's a double entendre. You know, it's this kind of surprise that he had joy, the woman and the condition. And then she was taken from him by cancer. So they only had a few short years together. But what's interesting is what he writes in that book, Surprised by Joy, is I discovered, I thought I was pursuing God. And what I discovered was that he had been relentlessly pursuing me. And that is the truth of this. This is the good news of this message here today. My friends, please, whether you say, oh, I can't see God, I don't know where he is, or God's not faithful, or he hasn't answered my prayers, or he hasn't done this, trust me, I said all those things, all those things, Trust me, God is relentlessly, he's not offended by that. He's not going to stop. I mean, if you think you can get him to stop by offending him, good try. He's going to relentlessly pursue you and pursue you and continue to invite and continue to embrace you because that's what he says to Peter. Peter, you need to say the opposite of that. Not get away from me, but come near to me. Enfold me in your arms. That's what Peter, and Peter does become that messenger of that. In the end, the man broken denies his Savior, boisterous, bold, a braggart. He, in the end, is the one who proclaims to the world, come near, for he will embrace you. Third thing. i got to have a drink, sorry. I don't know if any of you, this is a little more serious. I've been involved with five interventions in my life. That's a it's kind of a technical term that you use, especially for people who may struggle with um, substance abuse or addiction. I've had to do one within my own family. I've done three of them, two of them out of the five, two of them, the person who we were trying to intervene got wind of it and never showed. In three of them, two of them went great. One of them didn't go so well. An intervention is a le almost kind of a latch dish effort with people that you care deeply about 
to try to intervene in their life. And it typically goes something like this. It's, it's not something you do lightly because you get one shot. It's one shot. And it's a group of people. It can be a small group. It can be a larger group. Usually family, friends, clergy, people they respect and love, know that love them, and they, you write them a letter. And you read. And to say the behavior and the things that you're doing, I love you enough to tell you this very, very hard, very difficult thing. And you get them in a room, you corner them, and you intervene. Does that sound fun to you? I'm guessing not. That's no fun, man. That is no fun to do. And it, if it's not done with deep prayer and humility, it does not go, in my, in my experience. But boy, is it an act of love. Oh my goodness, is that an act of love. And we live in such an interesting world right now in which how dare we ever say that anyone might possibly be wrong or in error or doing something which might damage themselves or others. And that's why anytime those things happen, they have to be built completely on relationships and trust. You can't just walk and wade into somebody's life and command them to do things, but built on trust and relationship and love. Well, this is what happens with Paul. God loves Paul enough to stand in the road in Damascus, the resurrected Christ, comes and stands in the road in Damascus and says to Paul, what the heck do you think you're doing? This far and no farther, Paul, because Paul's on his way in pious, sanctimonious, self-religious righteousness, heading up to Damascus to imprison, detain, imprison, and execute followers of the way. Of followers of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. And Jesus stands in the road and says, no more. But Jesus does it. That's a hard word. That is a word that does not play in our culture right now. How dare you? How dare you show such deep and abiding love? As I say, done in arrogance, done without humility, it will fall and fail every time. An intervention, a confrontation. Done with humility, bathed in prayer, out of deep and enduring love for people that we care about, I have seen interventions transform lives. That's God's hope. That's what God is after. My, my point today really is, can you relate to any of these? Can you relate to Isaiah? I'm a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, Lord. But in atoning me, now I'm ready to be sent because you've healed me so I can wade into the place where hurt is. Or, Peter, Lord, get away from me. And you change that tune to, Lord, please come near. I cannot be outside of your presence or your grasp. Or, thirdly, Paul. Lord, you did an intervention with me because you needed to, because you said to me, this far and no farther, because I love you that much. It's not easy. It's not fun. But it's a measure of love. And so in those cases, whose are we? We are his. He is pursuing you relentlessly, endlessly, continually, with a grace that never ends. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are the one who pursues us. You are the hound of heaven. 
the one who longs for us so desperately, so deeply, that not only would you come to the cross and take our place and become sin on our behalf and fulfill the law on our behalf, not only would you do those things, but you then pursue us with that message of love and grace and you transform us and then make us agents of your love. Oh, my Lord, how could you do such a thing and entrust such to us? But you do, and for that we praise you. For you have called us your own. You have atoned us. You have drawn us near. You have enfolded us in your arms, and you have completely changed our hearts, taking out our hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. For that, Lord, we give you thanks and praise. Strengthen our faith, Lord, that we might live in joyful grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey everyone, a couple of events to stick on your calendars coming up in March. The first one is on March 9th, the Grace Lutheran School Annual Spring Auction will be held at Grace Lutheran High School. The theme this year is Treasure Island. Ticket sales began on February 8th in the school office and you will also be able to purchase them at church on the 17th, the 24th, or March 3rd. And the raffle kickoff will begin on February 20th. So if you have any items you'd like to donate for the auction, you can email the auction staff at auction at gracepocatello.org. Also, City Rock Fest 2019 is coming around again. This will also be held at the high school at 6.30 on March 14th. Um, Some bands that are going to be featured this year are Seventh Day Slumber, The Protest, and Amongst the Giants. If you have any questions about Rockfest or want to come, um, you can call the church office for questions, but know that admission is free, so invite your friends. Hope to see you there.